Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your blessings, your presence among us this morning. Thank you for the word that we have heard taught this morning thus far, and we pray your blessing on Lester as he preaches your word now. May you anoint him with your spirit. May he be able to think clearly and, and be able to speak the truth boldly on the authority of your word. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Greetings to each one of you this morning, and welcome. Thank you for that beautiful singing. I hope that it drew you to worship like it did me. I want to draw your attention this morning to another story or account of, out of the scripture of one of the Old Testament kings. Today I'd like to look at the life of King Joash, and I invite you to turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 24. As some of you know, I have been looking at a number of different Old Testament kings, I think today is the third one, and just looking at their lives, their, their choices, the decisions they made, um, the ups and downs sometimes of their life. Um, and, and trying to learn some lessons from them, from their example, whether good or bad. If you're at all familiar with the Old Testament kings here in, in the book of First and Second Kings and Chronicles, you know that there was, there was good kings and there was not good kings. Um, it seemed like they, they kind of went back and forth and you know, one man would, would do well in leading the people to walk in godliness. His son would come along and make some terrible choices and, and it affected the whole country, or the entire nation of Israel and Judah, and, and as well as generations to come. And then God would again bring a man that, that would really um, draw the people back to him, who would bring reforms. And then it would go back the other way. I think there's just a, a lot of good lessons for us as we look at these accounts. I'd like to read 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verses 1 through 25. This is um, most, uh, or, yeah, most of the, the life of, of Joash, though the previous chapter or two gives us some background. Um, and, and maybe I'll just speak on that a little bit right now before we jump in here. Because chapter 24 starts with Joash as a seven-year-old. He became king when he was only seven years old. How many of you young men here are seven years old? Is there any seven-year-olds? Maybe none right now. They're scared to raise their hand. Okay. Well, some of you are close to that. But, so this man became king of Judah when he was only seven years old. And the reason for that um, was that if you look at his, his family, his, some of his family members were rather um, ungodly people. His, I have to see if I can get this all right, I didn't, didn't write it out real well, but um, been his grandfather, I believe, was, oh boy, I, I don't have all straight here, but, but his, his father was king and then was, died or, or passed away. And anyhow, his, his grandmother asserted herself as, as the head over the nation of Judah for a short time. And she was a very ungodly woman. She had a very negative influence on her husband and as well as other people. 
And the important thing to remember here, I think, is that, that okay, so God had made a promise that the, the king over Israel would, would be the descendants of David forever. Would, the, the, the rulers over Israel would descend from David's family line. And, and we know it gives us, the Bible gives us that history of how Jesus came from that family and now reigns for eternity. But um, right here, as um, King Joash, when his father passed away, I, I need to find that verse to just um, see what actually happened to him. Okay, I'm, I'm not looking on the right page. Haziel was his name. Uh, he was reigning, and he was killed, yes, in, in the end of chapter 22. The, the, his enemies came and found him hiding, and, and he was killed. So then his mother, Athaliah, was the wicked one who asserted herself as ruler over the house of Judah for a time. And she was not from that family line of David. And she went out to attempt to kill all the descendants of, of um, her husband who would potentially reign in the future. So this was behind the scenes the devil working to, to counteract or to destroy um, that family line, to counteract God's plan. But it didn't work. So this Joash, this Infant at this time, his aunt, Jehoshabeth, stole him away from the king's sons who were being murdered, it says there in chapter 22. So she took him and hid him for a time until he was seven years old. And then her, her husband, who was um, the priest Jehoiada, they brought him out um, and, and gathered the people around, rallied around there. They had, they had some people there to protect him as well, because knowing that that Athaliah would would attempt to destroy him, and, and they, they crowned him as king. So that's how it came about that at seven years old, he became the king of Judah. Let's read here beginning in chapter 24, and I'll read through verse 25. Joash was seven years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. And Jehoiada took two wives for him, and he had sons and daughters. Now it happened after this that Joash set his heart on repairing the house of the Lord. Then he gathered the priests and the Levites and said to them, Go out to the cities of Judah and gather from all Israel money to repair the house of your God from year to year, and see that you do it quickly. However, the Levites did not do it quickly. So the king called Jehoiada the chief priest and said to him, Why have you not required the Levites to bring in from Judah and from Jerusalem the collection? according to the commandment of Moses, the servant of the Lord, and of the assembly of Israel for the tabernacle of witness. For the sons of Athaliah, that wicked woman, had broken into the house of God and had also presented all the dedicated things of the house of the Lord to the Baals. Then at the king's command they made a chest and set it outside the gate of the house of the Lord. And they made a proclamation throughout all Judah and Jerusalem to bring to the Lord the collection that Moses, the servant of God, had imposed on Israel in the wilderness. Then all the leaders and all the people rejoiced, brought their contribution, and put them into the chest until all had given. So it was at that time when the chest was brought to the king's official by the hand of the Levites, and when they saw that there was much money, that the king's scribe and the high priest's officer came and emptied the chest and took it and returned it to its place, 
Thus they did day by day and gathered money in abundance. The king and Jehoiada gave it to those who did the work of the service of the house of the Lord, and they hired masons and carpenters to repair the house of the Lord, and also those who worked in iron and bronze to restore the house of the Lord. So the workmen labored, and the work was completed by them. They restored the house of the Lord to its original condition and reinforced it. When they had finished, they brought the rest of the money before the king and Jehoiada. They made, it from, they made from it articles for the house of the Lord, articles for serving and offering, spoons and vessels of gold and silver. And they offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord continually all the days of Jehoiada. Now I'll make a few notes here. I'm going to keep reading, but notice uh, what King Joash was doing here. So he was obviously very influenced by his uncle, the priest Jehoiada. And he was faithful in doing what, I believe, what God wanted him to do. He, they had, the country had suffered tremendously under this wicked rule of the queen. And um, the temple had been destroyed, and, and he went about to reform this. We see how the, 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 uh, the way he went about doing that in just uh, a commitment to restore, again, the temple and... The articles in the temple and the sacrifices that, that they had been commanded to make. But then it says in 15, But Jehoiada grew old and was full of days, and he died. He was 130 years old when he died. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings, because he had done good in Israel both toward God and his house. Now after the death of Jehoiada, the leaders of Judah came and bowed down to the king. And the king listened to them. Therefore they left the house of the Lord God of their fathers and served wooden images and idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem because of their trespass. Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord. And they testified against them, but they would not listen. Then the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, who stood above the people, and said to them, Thus says the Lord, Why do you transgress the commandment of the Lord, so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he also has forsaken you." So they conspired against him, and at the command of the king they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done to him, but killed his son, and as he died he said, The Lord look on it and repay. So it happened in the spring of the year that the army of Syria came up against him. They came to Judah and Jerusalem and destroyed all the leaders of the people from among the people, and sent all their spoil to the king of Damascus. And the army of the Syrians came with a small company of men, but the Lord delivered very great army into their hand, because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. So they executed judgment against Joash. And when they had withdrawn from him, for they left him severely wounded, his own servants conspired against him because of the blood of the sons of Jehoiada the priest, and killed him on his bed. So he died, and they buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings." So we see a, a big change happening here in, in Joash's life, obviously. And it makes us wonder what, what changed, what was the problem here, that he went from a king who, who worked so hard to restore the temple to, what, to a condition that honored God. He, he brought the people back to worship there and ends up he's um, apparently okay with idol worship and he actually ends up killing the prophet in that temple that he had restored because he didn't like what the prophet was telling him because the prophet was trying to bring uh, 
trying to correct him and his men. <clears throat> Joash changed after he lost his uncle, Jehoiada the priest. It seems like his beliefs and his convictions were dependent on who was around him. This made him an unstable man and without a strong foundation. So the title of my message this morning is Examine the Foundation. <clears throat> the lesson we want to learn from here is, is what, what foundation are we building on? What are we standing on? Are we as unstable as Joash? Would, would our lives change drastically if the people who are influential around us would change? Or what are we building on? I'd like to hear from you as you look at Joash here. Uh, what are some words you would use to describe him as a person, as a, as a king? As you look at somebody that, that makes that big of a change in life from, from when he was, you know, this young man, this seven-year-old up through his teen years. And I don't, I don't know for sure how long Jehoiada was a part of his life, how, how long they overlapped there. But it would seem like it was a good while. And the change we see from there to where, in the end here, the awful mistakes he makes. What are some words you could think of that would describe him? Wishy-washy. Wishy-washy? Okay, that's good. Full of pride. Full of pride. He's a follower. A follower, rather than, rather than a leader. And he just went along with them. Right. Maybe a people pleaser. Um, unstable. Easily swayed. No backbone. These are some of the things I think about that would describe King Joash. <clears throat> we may well find ourselves in a similar situation to King Joash. Many of us have been well-raised, good homes, Christian parents, family and friends that we have good connections with, godly people who are influential in our lives. So we may have some similarities, but what is the foundation that we are standing on? If the influential people around us leave or change, will it change our lives? As I think about this story, I, I find it kind of easy to maybe be a little critical of Jehoiada. Now, it, it tells us he was a godly man. It says they buried him with the kings. He, he was so much honored that they buried him with the kings, but they did not bury Joash there. Did you notice that? So it seems like the people really maybe looked to Jehoiada as their real leader, um, he was a godly man, but it's, it's kind of easy to be critical of him too. Um, did he not do enough to teach Joash? Did he not spend enough of time teaching him from the word of God? Did he micromanage him? We were talking about some of this in the, in the men's Sunday school class of how, um, how Paul um, led the church and you know, he tried to, to influence them and yet they had to make some choices themselves as well and establish leadership because he couldn't just go around micromanaging everybody. Um, did Jehoiada, was he a micromanager? Did he just, just tell Joash exactly what to do and Joash just followed and all of a sudden Jehoiada isn't there anymore? It's not like he died suddenly. I mean, he was an old man. It says he 
was full of days, so it was an expected death, you could say. He had time to prepare to, to get Joash to, um, to be a leader on his own, to follow God. And it's true, there may have been some faults in Jehoiada's life, but this does not relieve Joash of his responsibility either. We can very clearly see that Joash made some choices. Um, he could have, he was given warnings, and he could have changed his ways. And um, he did, after all, know at least some of what God had instructed them to do because he rebuilt that temple and he said, we, we have to do this. This is what Moses in the law told us to do. So I don't think we can relieve Joash of any responsibility regardless of, of the faults of, that Jehoiada may have had in not teaching him. In verses 17 through 22, we see some steps that Joash took that undermined and destroyed the foundation that Jehoiada had laid for him. We see him, first of all, it says he listened to these men. Now, just listening by itself wasn't necessarily wrong, but I think this is indicating, and it does show here, that he did more than listen, but he, he wanted their respect and honor, and he was willing to really to be their follower <clears throat> rather than their leader. And then it says, shortly after this, they, these men left the house of the Lord God, and they started worshiping idols. And again, we don't see Joash putting any stop to that, doing anything about that. Um, so God sent prophets to speak to them, but it says they didn't listen. And I would think that surely Joash knew what these prophets were saying and heard that warning as well. And so time goes on, and this, this is Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the man who was so influential in Joash's life, is now the prophet that is speaking to them. And Joash gives the command to destroy him. So we see how far he drifted away from where he had been at. We must examine the foundation. The foundations in our lives matter. It makes a difference. Um, three other scripture passages I'm going to refer to. You don't have to turn to these, but they're probably ones that are fairly familiar to you. But New Testament passages that, that show us how important a foundation is. The one is, is um, Jesus' illustration in Matthew of the house that was built on rock versus the house that was built on sand. It says there that when the storms came, you know, that, that house on rock, the foundation it was built on made all the difference. That one stayed standing. The one on sand was destroyed. Both houses very well could have looked exactly alike on the surface, but it was the foundation that they were on that mattered. Another one is in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower. The, the one seed that is used in that illustration is a seed that fell on stony ground. And it says its roots didn't go down very deep. It sprung up, it started growing, but it didn't have good roots. Or we could say it didn't have a good foundation underneath it. And then when the sun shone, became hot, that plant withered. Again, that's telling us that what is underneath the surface, the foundation that we stand on, makes all the difference. The seed was the same as the one that grew in good ground, but it was the foundation under it that made the difference. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talks about the church and that its only foundation is Jesus Christ. There is no other foundation. And he says, take heed how you build on that foundation. So he's teaching believers. He's speaking to a church. He's, he's talking to people who know that Jesus is the foundation. But he says we also need to take heed how we build on that foundation. What material we use 
to, to continue to build. And he says there will be um, gold, silver, stone, wood, hay, and stubble, I think it is, the different uh, materials that he refers to there. Some of it will last and some will not. We need to take heed how we are building on our foundation. I'd like to then illustrate or show to you two ways that we can build a strong foundation. And then I, at the end I have one warning. So as I think about the importance of, of what we are building on, and see this example from King Joash and, and his failure to, to good, put a good foundation underneath him, um, two ways that we can have a strong foundation. First one is the fear of the Lord. Proverbs talks a lot about this. Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Is um, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The fear of the Lord is a strong confidence. It leads to, a better, it leads to life and is better than riches. And by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil, as well as as many other um, examples there in the book of Proverbs. Solomon, when he wrote this, he understood what the fear of the Lord was and its importance. And this is fear that means, um, it's maybe a little different than we use the word fear sometimes, but, but this fear of the Lord that the scriptures talk about is a fear of, of reverence and awe and respect, but it's also uh, mixed with some terror, with some real fear, like, like we think of being scared of something. The fear of the Lord isn't only um, reverence and love and, and honor and respect for him, but it is mixed with a sense of terror as well, being afraid of um, going against God, fear of his judgment. A fear that makes us, like Proverbs says, to go away from evil, to turn away. To know the fear of the Lord is to know how big he is. That he is powerful. That he is omniscient. He is ever-present. He knows everything. He is sovereign over all the world. And he is holy, perfect, and sinless. So in, in learning to know the fear of the Lord, we need to know and we need to teach how big God is. This is simple. We probably talk to our children in this way. when, in, in simple terms, we can let them know that God is big. God is everywhere. God sees everything. That's important to know how big God is. Then also to know that he is loving, that he is kind, patient, merciful, and that he is a relational God. He wants a personal relationship with each of us. This is how we know the fear of the Lord. This is how we look at God as awesome, as, as um, powerful, all-knowing, sovereign, and yet have that terror of the judgment that he will bring. <clears throat> Opposing the fear of the Lord is the fear of man. You're probably familiar with how that feels, at least on some level. To fear man, to be afraid of what other people think of you. 
So opposing this fear of the Lord that we are to have and we are to know is the fear of man that Satan brings into our lives to seek to, to draw us away from the fear of the Lord. And we see this in Joash's life, that fear of man. It, it seems apparent to me that after Jehoiada passed away, and these leaders, these were prominent men in Judah that came to him, and he was afraid of losing their respect. He was afraid to go against what they were saying because they would no longer like him as king. And maybe in, in their days, we see what happened to some of those kings. It may have been a legitimate fear. Uh, they, were, they were seen rather quick to come and destroy somebody uh, that they didn't like. It happened in, in Joash's own family line. But that fear was greater than his fear of God. What does the fear of man look like? How does it feel? And what does it do to me? It tells us there in Chronicles that Joash did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada, the priest, had done to him. I don't know how much time went by here from when Jehoiada died and passed on till verse 22 where it says he did not remember that. The fear of man makes us forget the goodness of God. Fear of man is blinding, it's brain-numbing, and it's deceptive. It causes us to forget God. <clears throat> Paul in Philippians chapter 3 said that he has no confidence in the flesh. And he goes on to list his credentials there, his education, his family line, and all, all the things that, that man around him um, wanted to see. And, and respected him for and loved him for. He said that's, he puts no confidence in that. He doesn't need any of that. But rather the fear of the Lord. Another thing I think is important in knowing the fear of the Lord is, is to understand what God has in store for us. Now, we don't know what, I'm not talking about our experiences in life um, in every detail, as much as God's greater plan for humankind. Vital to knowing the fear of the Lord is knowing what he has in store for the future. To read and to seek to understand prophecy, to know what is God's plan for this world, Do, is what, what men are telling us, is what, they're, what they are threatening us with, is, is the fear of man... Um, is that what's going to rule and reign, or is God going to? And we can see this, um, especially in the book of Revelations. I think it's important that even though there's, there's so much that in that book that's hard to understand, that we still read it and seek to understand it. It tells us what God has in store for the future. It tells of, of his terrible judgment that we should be afraid of. And it tells us of his great plan of saving his people, of taking them out of this world. To save them from that judgment. It tells us of the glory of heaven, the future, eternity um, in heaven. And we know that there is a path for us to walk that we can be there. So we need to read and understand what God has in store for our future. This will help us to know the fear of the Lord. There will be, and perhaps should be, a certain level of fear of man. In other words, we don't just 
arrogantly ignore everything that anybody else is telling us and say, no, I'm, I'm not going to bow to the fear of man. We do need to listen to each other. We do need to submit to each other. But the, the antidote for this problematic fear of man is the fear is a greater fear of God. When, when our fear for God is greater than any fear we have of man, we will not get caught in that um, trap like Joash was where, where he made terrible choices just because he started out um, afraid of what these men would think of him. <clears throat> the second one I have is a mindset of a slave. And what we need to have or do to build a strong foundation. We need to have the mindset of a slave. And let me explain um, what I mean by that. First of all, we see, we see Joash here and many examples before him. Or we see that he had many examples, good examples before him. Moses, um, David, you know, his, his, his um, ancestors, his great-grandfather Jehoshaphat was another king that we read quite a bit about in, previously here in Second Chronicles. He was a very godly man, a godly ruler. He had these examples of leaders who submitted to God, even in times of great adversity, even in times of temptation, even when it seemed like they were going to be utterly destroyed for just following God, and yet they did. He had those examples, those men before him who had the mindset of a slave. And by that I mean one who submits himself to God, one who follows God. The men that Joash feared ended up becoming his master, controlling his life, and leading him into sin. A strong foundation in Christ requires that we choose to become his slave, willingly submitting to him and seeking to please and honor him. I'd like to turn to Luke chapter 15 for, I think, it's just an excellent illustration of our relationship with Christ, the, the proper relationship that we should have uh, with God. And it's the parable of the prodigal son. I think this is familiar enough that I don't need to go through and, and read this. There was this man that had two sons. The one wanted to go his own way, wanted all his inheritance, and go out and enjoy life. And he, he asked that of his father, and his father gave it to him. And we know he went out, and he just wasted it away. He lived a good life for maybe a short time, but ended up poor. Um, his circumstances took a turn for the worse, and he was going hungry. He didn't know where else to go. Finally, he comes to his senses and said, you know, my own father's servants lived much better than I did. And he decided to go back to his father and be one of his servants. Um, it tells us how he came back. He rose and came to his father. When he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. This is a picture of, of our relationship with Christ. That we need to come to him as a servant or as a slave. Realizing that we are at the end of ourselves. Uh, there's no hope for our sinful state except in Christ. 
and go back to him, not requesting that we be his special son, but that we be his slave, his servant. The mindset of a slave. The amazing thing then is that God accepts us as his son. He makes us a part of his family. He adopts us into his family. He does not treat us as a slave. He doesn't put us out in a little shack in tight and miserable conditions and force us to work long hours with little pay. No, he accepts us as part of his family. But we come to him with the mindset of a slave. Scripture says we cannot serve two masters, either Jesus Christ or Satan. If our master is Jesus, we will not be easily swayed by others. And then last of all, the warning. The warning is that God will test us to see what our foundation is made of. God knows our weaknesses. He knows, he sees what's underneath our lives. He knows where we are weak and where we need to be strengthened. He sent prophets to Joash and the people of Judah to warn them because he saw where there was weakness, where there was sin. He gave them the opportunity to build back again, stronger. God knows where we are weak and we will be tested. Both of the illustrations in the book of Matthew that I referred to, the, the, or the, the sower with the seed and the two houses, the one that was built on rock, the other on sand, both of these indicate a time of testing coming. There was wind and rain and a storm that beat on both of those houses. And in, with the seed, there was the sun's heat that came burning down and shriveled up that plant that did not have deep roots. There will be a time of testing. How and when and where is different in each of our lives. The question we need to ask ourselves is, <clears throat> what is our foundation built on? Is the fear of man controlling us? Why do we practice and believe what we practice and believe? Is it just because of other people around us and what they think of us? Or is it rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ? In Ephesians 3.17 says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that ye being rooted and grounded in love. And this was Paul writing. Uh, again, we, we talked about this in Sunday school and it's, it's so clear in, in our Sunday school study of the, the great love that, had, that Paul had for these churches and the zeal that he wanted to see their faith grow. And here he says his desire, his prayer is that this church will be rooted and grounded in love. He was interested in what foundation the churches were building on. He realized that the foundations mattered and we need to examine our foundation. Again, the fear of God and coming to Christ with the mindset of a slave will help us to build that foundation strong. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you for showing us the truth of your word, for giving us this wonderful opportunity to gather and study your word, and also the, the privilege we have of, in this country of, of freely uh, gathering and of having your word available to us. You give us these stories of the Old Testament kings and um, many examples in the scripture that we can learn from. 
Pray, Lord, that we will be willing to examine the foundation that we are building on and how we are building on it. That we would, when time of testing comes, we would turn to you and allow you to strengthen us, make us stronger by the trials and temptations that we go through. Thank you that you do send us warnings, you send us prophets, bring people into our lives that speak to us. May you strengthen our foundations that we can be faithful to you to the end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Chad, do you have a closing song? Let's go.